This is Opinionated, a roundtable debate that fascinates with each new thought-provoking guest, the place to convey strong ideas and, at times, the casual controversy. Join Features Editor Ben Schiller and reporters Anna Batakova and Danny Nelson as they push the conversation further with their own criticisms and reactions to the latest Bitcoin and crypto news from around the world. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hi, everyone. This is Opinionated, Coindesk's weekly podcast on the hottest and most controversial topics in crypto. I'm Anna Baidakova and hosting this show for you with Ben Schiller. Hi, Ben. Hey, Anna. And Danny Nelson. Hello, Danny. Hello. Today with us is Eric Wall, Chief Investment Officer at the Swedish hedge fund Arcane Crypto. In the past, Eric worked for Cinnabur, the firm that provided tech solutions for the trading platforms in mainstream finance. So he is now closely watching the crypto space and trying out various investment opportunities to find the best ones for the fund. Eric saw uh, a lot in this crypto world. This July, you tweeted, Eric, I'm 30 today, so I spent my entire 20s in Bitcoin. What the f***? Uh, so first of all, congratulations about getting 30. Sorry about that. It's going to be okay. You'll get used to it. Welcome to the club. But really, you spent uh, quite a fair part of your life in crypto. Not everyone can say that. So I'm just curious, you saw that all and you saw how this industry has been changing and all the crazy uh, twists and changes of the past couple of years. I, I wonder if you can give kind of a brief overview how your own views and attitudes and preferences in crypto has been changing, especially recently, if they have been changing. Yeah, it's going to be a challenge to summarize a decade in crypto, but I, I can give it my best attempt. Uh, so I was lucky enough to discover Bitcoin in 2011. Initially, my interest was just the fact that this was a new asset class. It had, didn't have any previous history. And I was studying computer science at the uh, Faculty of Engineering in Lund in Sweden, and I had the opportunity to learn all about the cryptographic primitives that underpin blockchain protocols. But my main interest in Bitcoin was actually because if I hadn't gone into computer science, I would have gone into finance. And Bitcoin became an opportunity to sort of do both things at the same time. So initially, what I used Bitcoin for was to understand how markets work and learn how to trade. Uh, so embarrassingly enough, for a couple of years, I was uh, very deeply involved in the uh, technical analysis trading part of the industry. So I would be uh, using the exact same technical indicators that you see modern traders use today, such as RSI indices, MACD. So all these typical indicators that traders use to look at a chart and see, okay, well, when this line crosses that line, that means that I'm going to buy. So now you're embarrassed to talk about that. Why? Yeah, I am embarrassed because eventually as I got further into my computer science degree, I learned uh, sufficiently well how to program. So it didn't take more than running a Python script over the past price history of Bitcoin and test those indicators algorithmically to come to the conclusion that there was no empirical evidence that any of these indicators that the traders at the time were using actually had any empirical basis for actually working. So I started to question other traders, is there any scientific background 
behind what you're doing, can you empirically prove that what you are doing is leading to positive results uh, when you're trading? And I didn't find any, any evidence or trace of that. Wait, so all these like moving averages, golden crosses, death crosses, it's all nothing? You want to tell me that it all means nothing? It means nothing. They do not work. Uh, there is no empirical evidence that they do work, as they, at least to my research. However, there are some traders that use those indicators and still remain profitable. I was one of those traders. So how does that work? Like, How can you use those indicators and be profitable if the empirical evidence says that there is no such basis? There's no uh, statistical evidence that, that it works. Well, it comes down to that when you're making a trade uh, as a trader, you use these indicators, but you also take in a discretionary element, which means that you take in some sentiment from the industry, something like, uh, okay, the Lightning Network white paper has just been released. And for that reason, you're starting to notice a positive sentiment momentum build up in the industry. And you take all your indicators together with that discretionary piece, the one that actually talks about something that's happening in reality when you put that into the mix, and then you actually end up trading profitably. But what I realized was you could just filter out all those indicators and just focus on the discretionary uh, element, which was the thing that was actually happening in the industry. And when once I started to do that, my trading performance started to improve. And I started to realize that the only element that was actually producing any alpha was the discretionary element. So that was my journey. And that is why you know, it's very easy to criticize people that are doing something that you've also done in the past and you came to the conclusion that it did not work. So when I see these other traders use technical analysis tools, it's very easy for me to see, you know, you know, I was in that situation. I know how they think. I understand the psychology behind it because I was that kind of person myself. Now, has that won you any friends being vocal about how you've kind of overcome your past sins and realized the folly of them? Well, I wouldn't say it made me any friends, but there are a lot of people in the cryptocurrency industry, I'd say that the majority of the long-term participants in the industry, they do view technical analysis as hogwash. So of course, it put me at odds with the trading community that use these tools. But there's a lot of people that agree with me and resonate with the conclusions that I made. I think it's fair to say that a lot of people are quite skeptical about these technical analysis uh, methods, and yet they are sort of very pervasive and prevalent. Why do you think people are so keen to kind of adopt them and to go with them and to raise them as sort of gospel? Well, the main reason I would say is most people don't have a fundamental framework to analyze cryptocurrency assets. They don't know if Bitcoin should be worth $1,000, $10,000 or $100,000. They don't have the necessary macroeconomic understanding to understand where should you place this asset class in the overall ecosystem of assets that exists in the world. And if you don't have that background and you still want to trade profitably, you take these easier paths where someone just tells you when X happens, you buy, and when Y happens, uh, you sell. So it's a very easy for people to think that, well, this is something that I understand. If I just follow this schematic, then I can trade profitably. So it's very alluring in that sense. If I just use a formula, I can trade profitably. And then you have all these, if you go on YouTube and you look at like, how do I trade Bitcoin profitably? It's overwhelmed with these people that are selling courses, that are producing YouTube materials. So if you're just a regular person and you're trying to you know, Google your way to how to understand how to trade crypto, that's where you're going to end up. And these people, you know, they look very sophisticated when they have all these charts, all these indicators, all these uh, complex looking graphs. They sound very sophisticated. It sounds like they know what they're doing. And 
you know, they have tons of screens. So I, I think it's very easy to become tricked that these guys know what they're talking about. And they're also very good at, you know, editing their past predictions and just mm-hmm. uh, only keeping the videos where they made correct predictions that stay on their page. And it creates this, you know, survivorship bias illusion that they are trading profitably. It's like a stop clock. I mean, it's, uh, it tells the right time twice a day. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about winning friends, Eric once tweeted that uh, Cardano crowd calls him Ethereum maximalist, while Ethereum maximalists call him Bitcoin maximalist, and Bitcoiners call him a shitcoiner. So I guess Eric is the perfect person to talk about all of the above, exactly because of that. You know, when Bitcoin trading is so tricky to figure, I wonder how much trickier and wilder is in this world of DeFi tokens, of farming and yield program and whatever. And this is where you need to get your head around and pick successful projects, right? So what are you basing your judgment on when you're looking in these incredible landscapes at all these tokens and protocols and decentralized exchanges and see what's worth what? Yeah, so uh, that's a very good question. It's also a complex one, however. So currently, I put cryptocurrency investments into three different buckets. So you have Bitcoin, which is very easy to understand. It's digital gold, and its future price is going to depend on you know, how big of a concept does Bitcoin, how, how big does the meme of digital gold grow into the overall society, and how many funds choose to allocate, and how many uh, normal people choose to allocate to that asset class. So it's, it's very easy to understand. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have the smart contract platforms. And that's another industry. And Tard, I think it's fair to say now that Bitcoin and smart contract platforms are two separate segments. They're not necessarily in competition with each other. Bitcoin can proliferate as digital gold, fair enough and well enough on its own. But it doesn't mean that if Bitcoin becomes this huge success, it's going to eliminate the platforms that facilitate DeFi activity. Now, there are some people that believe that Bitcoin is going to someday in the future also become a platform for DeFi and whatever you do on Ethereum and other smart contract platforms, Bitcoin is going to engulf and capture those use cases as well. That's not something that we've seen happen. We have seen some attempts with sidechains to Bitcoin trying to become homes for DeFi as well, such as the Rootstock sidechain. Uh, and we all, we're also seeing initiatives such as Stacks trying to capture the DeFi use case. But none of those currently are anywhere near the DeFi activity that's happening inside of the Ethereum ecosystem today. And it's rather that uh, Ethereum is not getting challenged by Bitcoin right now. It's rather that Ethereum is getting challenged by these other layer one protocols that do the same thing as Ethereum does, only faster and with other programming languages underneath. Uh, So that's the second bucket that I would say a bucket of investment that you can make is in layer one smart contract platforms. Now, the third bucket are these, like on smart contract platforms, there are applications, right? And these applications, they uh, trade assets, they allow you to get leverage, they allow you to lend assets, but they have revenue streams. So in some, and, and also they have governance challenges. All of these applications, they need to grow and adapt to the ever-evolving futures of these platforms. So DeFi is currently always evolving, and each DeFi application needs to stay on top of the latest developments, which means that 
they have to be morphable. They have to be adaptable. How do you make these applications decentralized and allow them to adapt at the same time? Well, that's where governance tokens come in. So the governance tokens, it's a token that the, these decentralized applications launch. So the, so the application issues tokens and the holders of those tokens, they have the right to vote on the future upgrades to those applications, but they also get a stake in the revenue streams in, in some cases, not in all cases, but in some cases. So they kind of operate like equity. I mean, they're not technically speaking equity in any legal sense, but uh, they behave like pseudo equities. So that's the third investment buckets. So that's how I categorize the investment space currently. Uh, there's Bitcoin, there's a digital gold asset, there's these smart contract platforms, and there's competing layer ones for that. And then you have the smart contract tokens, the governance tokens themselves. I just wanted to jump ahead and ask if you see this kind of efficiency in the projects that are currently on the market. I have been blown away since the end of 2018, start of 2019. And I was working at Sonover, which was a company that built technology for the traditional financial world. So we built uh, matching engines that we sold to the Australian Securities Exchange, the London Metal Exchange. So we built uh, like tier one technology for not only matching engines and exchanges, but also for clearing houses. So I was very well aware of how the technical evolution works in the traditional financial space. And it was very slow. Like if you compare how uh, innovation happens on the internet and in smartphones with apps that are continuously getting better and better, you did not see that pace of innovation happening in the traditional financial space. DeFi is different. Just the, uh, the concept of an automated market maker, that's not something that I had seen in the traditional financial space. And it's something that just came from a research. This was an idea by Vitalik and then was iterated by tons of other people that came from all over the world. And they just tweaked uh, the code parameters and started to uh, improve the efficiency and functionality of these tools. And the pace that they have been evolving at is unlike anything I've ever seen in the traditional financial space because they don't have, uh, they're, they're working on a permissionless platform. Anyone can build code. Uh, anyone can come up with a new idea for how to tweak the code and they can improve upon that. So the pace at which DeFi has been evolving is so much faster and it gives me so much more excitement and enthusiasm than when I look at how the traditional financial world is evolving. So, you know, I wrote an email to the CEO of Snowbird. Now, Snowbird doesn't exist anymore. They got acquired by NASDAQ in the early 2019. Uh, so I was emailing my bosses and I said, you know, we are a technology vendor for the traditional financial world, but are we even sure that the traditional financial world is going to build the financial infrastructure for the future? Our C CEOs were concerned with questions, you know, like how does a bank look like in 10 years? And they were trying to think about uh, how does the internal clearing process look inside of a bank? What technology does a bank use 10 years from now? And I was thinking, do we even have banks 10 years from now? Is the ecosystem of finance going to change so much because of DeFi that the whole industry of finance is going to change at such a fundamental level that we're not even going to recognize? So what's your answer? Will there be banks 10 years from now? 10 years from now. I think that banks are going to have to adapt and incorporate and learn if they want to remain relevant in the future 10 years from now. There are going to have to be significant integrations between banks and the innovation pace that is happening in decentralized finance. You, you look at the yields that banks are able to provide. 
and you look at the yields that are happening in DeFi, I mean, you can become an automated market maker. You, you can, as a retail person, actually participate in providing liquidity for the overall market in DeFi. You cannot easily do that and you cannot easily choose for yourself which liquidity pool do you want to provide liquidity to. Those tools aren't accessible to you by the current existing financial landscape, but they are such opportunities are being opened up in DeFi. So I think that the financial opportunities for people to get yield on their assets uh, is going to be so much greater in DeFi that DeFi is just going to start to capture more and more of that user base. And I think that banks are going to have to adapt to that demand if they want to stay relevant. Do you think that the decentralized sector will be allowed to grow to such an extent where it will actually pose that type of challenge to the banks? I mean, I know the US is its own thing, but we're seeing in the US a really strong push against some of these efforts to uh, introduce yield, high yield rates to retail. I'm thinking right now about Coinbase. What Coinbase is offering 4% APY on USDC, that's hardly the craziest thing we've ever seen in crypto. It's like nothing. But if the SEC is willing to start there, there's the thought that, well, it's only a matter of time before they go across, go after these smaller, much wilder offerings out there in the market. So will the regulators around the world allow these T5 projects to grow to the point where they actually pose a reasonable challenge to the banks? I think there's some parallels here you can draw to 2017, where there were a bunch of new cryptocurrencies launching and they were doing illegal ICOs. They did not understand, or they did understand that what they were selling were basically illegal securities offerings. And then the SEC came after those protocols and started to clamp down and said, you, you conducted an illegal securities offering and we're going to fine you. In most of the cases, it was just a slap on the wrist, right? If you look at the EOS sale, it was just a slap on the wrist. And some of the participants in the cryptocurrency industry took that as a signal that, uh, meanwhile, there is um, definitely regulators that are going to come after you. It doesn't necessarily mean that this entire sector is going to shut down because the extent of the enforcement and the punishments that are out there they don't necessarily disincentivize this industry from growing. And if you look at, there are a number of top tier funds, Andreessen Horowitz, and you look at funds like uh, Multicoin uh, Capital, like what do they keep in their portfolios? Tons of these US-based funds keep tokens inside their portfolios, such as the UNI token. But the UNI token, and I'm now, now talking about the governance token in a decentralized exchange that exists currently uh, in Ethereum. I'm talking exactly about one of these products that Gary Gensler says it should be classified as security. The UNI token is included in the Bitwise index. Like if they know that there are regulatory issues around these assets, I think a large part of the industry is betting that the SEC, the regulators, they're not going to be able to come after and stop all of this. It's going to keep happening. And while there are going to be some of these protocols that face regulations that pull them back, the enforcement is not going to be sufficient to stop the decentralized finance revolution from happening. Sorry, but you used the analogy with the ICOs. I mean, didn't they successfully clamp down on that and, and stop that from happening? What really happened was that ICOs, they started to do the ICOs differently. So nowadays, there are not that many or barely any uh, high-profile token sales that are being conducted uh, to retail investors that haven't performed uh, KYC. So now the token sales that you see now, they are being uh, provided only to investors that have KYC themselves. 
And in many cases, they're excluding US investors. So they are now adapting to the regulations. And there are tons of token sales. Like if you look at CoinList today, you, you have tons of token sales that are being conducted in a regulatory compliant fashion. So instead of selling it to retail investors, initially all of that sell it to non-KYC retail investors, you distribute it in a way that is more regulatory compliant. I think there's going to be more regulation coming after even the, the later stages of how those tokens are being distributed. But this is like regulation takes two steps forward, and then innovation takes three steps forward. And it's always this cat and mouse game. And I don't think that the regulators are going to catch up with the ways that these fundraises and token launches and DeFi experiments are going to continue. Speaking of a different kind of risks, uh, this DeFi revolution you were speaking about is uh, coming along with this explosion of hacks and exploits and uh, various kinds of attacks on decentralized protocols. And sometimes when something gets hacked and money gets stolen, we discover that some decentralized protocols are not that decentralized and uh, the issuers can freeze the smart contract, they can freeze the funds, so the hacker can't cash out their ill-gotten gains. So from a perspective of an institutional investor, is it better to invest in a more centralized exchange, you know, that have this kill switch when you can uh, freeze the bad funds, or it's more promising, it's more interesting, it's more maybe potentially profitable to choose more decentralized ones that don't have this stop button? Yeah, this is a super, super interesting question. And I'm, I'm going to try to explain what is actually going on here because there's multiple layers to this. What's actually happening is that a lot of DeFi protocols, for regulatory reasons, they need to market and describe themselves as fully non-custodial and fully decentralized. If they did not do that, they would put themselves, you know, potentially being money transmitters or... Uh, custodians, and there would be regulatory constraints around what they can and what they cannot do. But if they claim that their technology is decentralized, there is no central party that manages the funds. It's a multi-sig arrangement that uses multi-party computation and zero-knowledge proofs and all that. That's something that we saw, for example, with ThorChain. ThorChain described themselves as non-custodial, decentralized, blah, blah, blah. And there's two benefits for them doing that. The first one is that, first of all, it means that people are going to buy their token to a larger extent because you know, people think that this product is great. It's decentralized, non-custodial. And it also means that ThorChain doesn't have to concern themselves with the regulator because they can confuse the regulator that their code is working in such and such a way that there is no specific party to clamp down on. But yes, it is very true that in many of these cases, there is inherent elements of centralization. The node operators, the validators, and the sequencers, and the smart contract operators, they all often have admin keys. That means that the protocol can shut down in the event of a hack, which is it's good in the sense that they can stop hackers. It's good in the sense it means that they can very quickly iterate and evolve and upgrade grade the code so they can move faster. But it also means that there's this inherent risk that they can do what's called a rug pull, so it means that they can, they can also become malicious and run away with everybody's money if they wanted to do that. So in the case when ThorChain got hacked, uh, ThorChain were able to limit the extent of the hack by shutting down everything. They shut everything down. In this case, also, the hacker was nice enough to return some of the funds, 
just to prove a point that uh, TorChain had not been properly audited, and it's very stupid to put this type of money into an unaudited contract. There's many side to this. And there's also a second element that I would like to bring into the story here, which is that a lot of the assets that you're actually using inside of these systems, they can have various forms of centralization as well. So even if ThorChain or Poly Network you know, explodes and tons of USDT gets stolen, then the stablecoin issuer can freeze the tokens that, that have been stolen. And that, that actually happened. I think it was in the uh, Poly Network hack that yeah. $30 million of USDT was stolen and Tether, the company that issues the stablecoin asset, they have a freeze function in the smart contract. They froze the stolen assets and you could see on the blockchain, there's just nine blocks later, which means just a couple of minutes later that they froze the assets. The attacker tried to withdraw those assets and put them into a, a decentralized exchange, but they were able to stop that just nine blocks earlier. And this is a concept that I've earlier described as DeFi condoms. We think about DeFi and we don't know what the risks are of going into these protocols. You don't know what is going to happen to you once you do that. You should probably wear a virtual condom of sorts. And Tether could act as that condom because even if the DeFi protocol fails and it's tons of diseases and things that could go wrong there, you are protected by the fact that the token issuer, the tokens that you're using, they have this extra protection mechanism that means that you know even if it was an insecure environment for you to be in, they can freeze the assets. And now what's happening in the Tether case is that they're working with law enforcement to make sure that the original owners get back the assets that they were owed. I think that's actually a good thing. I think at this stage of DeFi evolution, it's good to actually experiment with centralized assets that have some kind of backstop. So you know, I, I appreciate that there's some element of the attack that can get away with some money, and they usually do get away with some money, but not all of the assets get stolen. And if you want to securely experiment with this protocol, uh, you can use a stablecoin, and then you at least have the chance that the stablecoin issuer is going to save you at the end of the day and give the assets back to you. So I'm very much in favor of using DeFi condoms to allow this ecosystem to grow, to make the activity grow so that we can test the limits and boundaries. Because, I mean, people are still generating profits. People are still generating yields. The yields are very real, but the risks are being centrally constrained by the usage of these digital condoms. And I think that's a, a pretty interesting thing. <laughs> that's, that's, that's just a great metaphor. I, I think we're, we're all digesting. The, <laughs> but maybe we could, could switch gears here and talk about other opportunities in DeFi. For sure, Ethereum is wearing the crown of the leading DeFi protocol, but other blockchains are trying to catch up. Recently, you've been quite harshly criticizing Cardano for the way they were trying to develop the smart contract and DeFi features on their protocol. So I wonder if you see any viable competition for Ethereum among this uh, layer one protocols currently on. Are there any you know, players you're betting on? Yeah, so this is such a, such a massive topic. Let's try to touch on some brief and very crucial points that go into this mix. So Ethereum today is where it, it's the centerpiece of the centralized finance activity. But the fee situation, like the gas fee, the how much you need to pay in order to make a transaction on Ethereum, is of course, it's got it like looked at the last couple of days, 
it could cost you $500 just to make a regular transaction. And if you're trying to make a more complex transaction, it could very easily go up into the thousands of dollars. So is the question then, you know, is Ethereum inherently unscalable? Is Ethereum falling behind? Because we know that there are other smart contract platforms which do not have uh, those level of fees. Then the question is, of course, if you took all of the activity that is currently happening on Ethereum and you just started to do that on another system, would not the fee problem arise exactly in the same way on those platforms as well? Now, it depends on which platform you're comparing it to. Like if you take something like, let's say, let's say if you take something like Hedera Hashgraph, which just cloned the EVM, the, the execution environment that Ethereum has, and you take all of that DeFi activity and you put it inside of Hedera Hashgraph, you're going to run into the same protocol issues. You're going to run into the same congestion issues because they haven't really changed that much. The only reason that it's cheaper to do transactions there right now at the same decentralization metrics, like it's with the same ability to validate what's happening in the system, they haven't really innovated in any way. So you cannot just take Ethereum activity and put it into a clone of Ethereum and think it's going to solve the problem. You're going to run into the same problems. Now, some of those systems are trying to solve that problem by making it a lot more centralized. So Binance Smart Chain would be an example where they just made everything more centralized. So they're running the EVM at a slightly faster pace, but they're losing out on decentralization. Nobody can keep up on what's happening in this Binance Smart Chain. So I wouldn't say that those things are necessarily solutions because, I mean, we need decentralization. Then, of course, there's a question about how much decentralization do you need? And I think that Solana is probably the system right now that is really testing this thesis because Solana does not clone the EVM. Uh, it doesn't just create a carbon copy of the EVM. They actually also work with the lowest level of the technological stack and actually make low-level optimizations to how transaction processing is working. So they are processing transactions faster. But at the same time, they're also centralizing the system more. But they have higher throughput than Ethereum has. The question now becomes the thing that I want to get around to. And the theory is basically this. And it's the same thing when we were building traditional financial exchanges. Like It doesn't matter if our exchanges that we built were able to process 2,000 transactions per second, or if they were able to process 65,000 transactions or even a million transactions per second, because it just means that the more capacity that you provide, the more demand for that capacity you're going to create. So the main thing that is driving up the gas costs on Ethereum right now, it's not that you know, everyone is trying to push in these transactions into this very limited platform. It's that there are arbitrage opportunities in these smart contracts, and there are NFT auctions inside this, in the systems that can very easily pay $500 just to be the first one to execute your transaction. And that is what's pulling up the transaction fees for everyone else. Just to pick up about Cardano and uh, Charles Hutchinson, the former co-founder of Ethereum and founder of Cardano, you were rather rude about him recently. You described him as uh, dressing like Santa Claus and being clueless about Bitcoin. And he's dressing like a 55-year-old when he's only 33 to gain uh, legitimacy. Do you sort of stand by those comments? Isn't that a bit sort of rude uh, to talk about people that way? No, I definitely think that it's very rude. That's what's called an ad hominem, like it's a, a, an attack on a person. I generally don't 
do that type of personal attacks when I'm talking about technology. I think technology and personal attacks are two completely different things. But what you have to understand here is that I did not actually say those things. The clip uh, and the articles that have been written about that, I was interviewed by Swedish media about Cardano. And I talked about exactly the types of things that we are talking about now. I did not talk about Charles or, or his personality uh, whatsoever. However, the clip was doctored and there were fake subtitles being put underneath where it was made to look like as if I was uh, insulting oh Charles Hoskinson. Uh, so if you actually understand Swedish and you look at that clip, I'm not talking about Charles at all. I would never say anything about Charles in that way. That said, you know, I don't necessarily disagree with what is the <laughs> subtitles, but I would, met, I would not personally, I would never say anything like that. I think it's very unprofessional. Okay. And there was even a comment about if you buy Cardano, you are the equivalent of a lunatic or a retarded child. I would never use that type of language. But the clip was, was doctored. I thought it was funny. So I shared it, I shared it on my Twitter page. But I did not say those. And you can ask any Swedish person to look at the clip. And now it's kind of spiraled out of control. And you know, maybe I haven't gone out of my way to, to make sure corrected anybody that has this understanding. Because I, I think it's also funny to look at how much due diligence did those, uh, like you today that published the article about this, did they actually have a Swedish person look at what I actually said, or did they just read the subtitles and, and wrote the news piece that this actually happened? And I think that now it's just a good example of how incompetent various forms of media is and how much they just care about headlines and they don't actually look at the reality. So I'm just enjoying this controversy happening because I know that I didn't do anything wrong. Everyone that understands Swedish can verify that I did not say those things. It's a joke on the media right now. Well, I'm sorry for repeating those and giving any kind of oxygen to those ideas. Oh, yeah. I think it's a, it's a great point to bring up. And uh, I'm happy that I actually got the point to address that. Good. Well, how, how do you feel about Cardano? We don't need to call Charles Hoskinson Santa Claus, which I think is not necessarily the worst thing to be called if you're bringing gifts to everyone. But, you know, how do you feel about the technology behind Cardano? Yeah, I feel, and this is from speaking with multiple funds and other investors in the industry, that not a lot of people know that much about Cardano right now, because it's a project that has been going on for a very long time. I and mean, they started in 2015, they started to get notoriety in 2017. But from the people that I interact with, and I follow 3,000 different people from all over the cryptocurrency space, and not even the Cardano enthusiasts themselves are able to articulate what are the advantages and the trade-offs of the Cardano platform. I don't know if there is such an unbiased research piece that has been published. Personally, I have not been very interested in the Cardano project for multiple reasons. First of all, the valuation is very high. Second of all, by virtue of me being involved heavily in the technical side of the cryptocurrency industry, you know, I'm speaking with developers, uh, technical experts from all over the in cryptocurrency industry all the time. And it has never happened that someone has brought up like, okay, we should look at some of the elements to the things that Cardano is developing because they're doing genuine research there. So for that reason, it leads me to believe that there's probably nothing interesting happening in there. I can focus my time on these other projects, which people are actually talking about, and I can dig around in those and I can do my due diligence on those things. However, Cardano is launching smart contracts on the 12th of September. Now they're going to start to compete for the DeFi ecosystem. And now it's really time to start to understand what this platform can actually do. So I've started to do now um, in-depth, serious research on the Cardano platform. And my goal is to provide 
an unbiased review of what the scaling solutions look like, what the smart contract support looks like, what the consensus mechanism looks like. And I'm just going to provide that in an unbiased way as I can. Okay, so we're going to look forward for this coming analysis from you. And I, I think all the audience should be as well. This is the good moment to wrap up, I guess. Thank you for unpacking so many complicated things here. We've been talking to Eric Wall from Arcane Research. We've been talking about trading Bitcoin, the current DeFi landscapes, NFTs, scaling solutions, and more. So please follow Eric on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast and let us know what you think, guys. Thank you very much. A great guest. I really learned a lot from this. Thank you, Anna. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting that Eric has been in crypto forever. I'm not sure. He, I think he didn't mention that, but like he lost money on Mt. Gox eons ago. Right. And then he's been watching crypto all through and trading it. And he basically saw all the epochs of crypto going by. And he combines the technical knowledge, like he really understands how protocol works with the financial expertise. He knows how markets yeah. work. He is capable of explaining it in human terms. I, I thought he was a bit Pandlossian about the kind of DeFi regulatory battles ahead, because that seems like a big thing for next year. And he seems to think, well, if, if you build it, you know, most of it will still be left standing. But I'm not quite sure about that. I mean, um, I think that he's onto something with the, you know, innovation takes three steps, regulators take two steps. Otherwise, it's just whatever the regulators are rolling out. I also don't know if, you know, he seems to be of the opinion that we could be enter a world where the U.S. would just fall behind from the rest of the world. I mean, that in some respects, that's already happening with crypto. But I think that this is just such a major market still that it's not feasible for DeFi to really pose a challenge to the traditional banking system if it's basically out of commission in the US. If it's going to grow to the point that he says it could in 10 years, then I don't think that that's the same world as one where the US cuts itself off completely, which could be a world that we're heading toward. Maybe it's, it remains to be seen. But I, I think there's so much kind of uh, talk about protecting consumers when what's actually really happening is protecting the banks. So I think the kind of confluence of those two ideas is quite powerful and, and will lead to a lot more regulation next year. Well, I don't think Eric is completely wrong saying that whatever regulatory crackdowns are coming, they're not going to kill the industry entirely, as well as they didn't kill token sales. You, you just can't catch everyone and there will be survivors that will evolve and take this whole market to, to some new level, maybe. The question is, from a position of a project, from the standpoint of an investor, like, what are you betting on? This particular project you're dealing with, is it going to survive or not? Right. So I think he's not wrong, but it's very hard to build any strategies on the vision that somebody's going to survive anyway, even though I believe this is true. <laughs> Right. especially for crypto. Interesting what he said about stable coins and Tether and this concept of the digital condom that uh, if, uh, if you can't stop something bad happening within the DeFi protocol, there is always this sort of possibility with the stable coin. And I guess that becomes doubly true when we get other forms of stable coin coming, even maybe, I don't know, central bank digital currency is going to be a lot of pressure on these uh, kind of intermediaries to stop transactions that people don't like. And we, we've already seen that a, a lot in the traditional system. So seems to be uh, sort of doubly true in this emerging world. 
And it's funny that Eric says it's good to have this light mode for newbies and not very experienced traders who who want to play in these DeFi games, but they don't quite understand how it works. So they can use this like safe mode in which if their funds get stolen, there is a big guy that can hit the kill switch and the money gets frozen and, and they're made whole in a traditional good old centralized way. Maybe can teach people to learn more about stuff they get into without getting terribly burned. It's going to play out somehow. Yeah, but, but then again, I mean, I think that there might be a, a false sense of security in these in DeFi condoms. You know, like if you've got your money in a bank and it's in the US and it's FDIC insured as all banks are really in the US, you're protected against a rug pull to uh, impose that term in the wrong way, so to speak. Up but to again, like to a certain extent. Yeah, well, up to 250000 sure. So, but, you know, if you're a newbie in DeFi, you're not playing around with $250,000. You know, if you're Eric, well, maybe, but if you're new to the space, you're not aping in 250 k into some shit coin. But, you know. Or maybe you if, do. Well, maybe, or maybe, you know, you could. You could, and I, I respect you if you do, but I would question your judgment there. Regardless of that, though, if you take the understanding that you had in the old system of, you know, insured up to X, and you allow yourself to think of the DeFi condom model as protecting you, you might learn to not think enough about what you're doing. I mean, it is good to have some protection against getting scammed if you're transacting with the big guy who controls the currency, the, controls the issuance, then they can police the system. But then again, I mean, that's not necessarily a world where I think that would work. The whole point of crypto is to be more mindful of the, the fact that you are operating in a decentralized environment and therefore you have more direct control over your goings on and your money. If you're then even giving over an inch of that, we're, we're really playing with euphemisms here, if you're giving an inch of that over to some centralized entity in the, with your DeFi condom, you know, you're removing yourself from that equation and also perhaps putting too much trust in a centralized party that it is not in their mission statement to go out and to freeze any which way whenever something bad happens. So I think people need to be mindful about the issuers of their DeFi condoms, lest there's a, a hole in them. And of course, <laughs> nobody's going to be more mindful. Probably somebody will be, which we are urging you to be, guys. Yes, always wear a DeFi condom. Or think for yourself, I don't trust Verify, as we love to say in crypto. Okay, that was a great chat. Thank you everyone for listening. It's been Opinionated. I'm Anna Baidakova, and with me today here was Ben Schiller and Danny Nelson. And we talked to Eric Wall. Please check out these and other episodes on whatever apps you are listening to it and rate us and let us know how you feel about stuff you're hearing here. Send us your feedback, podcasts at coindesk.com. Thank you, everyone. And let's meet next week. Bye, buddy. Bye. <laughs>
We would love to hear from you. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.